Welcome to Adaptify. I'm Mike, I'm a paraplegic from New Zealand, and it's my mission to find the Adaptifiers of the world. People who have overcome challenges and found new, creative, interesting ways to be free despite needing to use a wheelchair for their mobility. Hey everyone, welcome back. Thanks for joining me. Before I introduce today's guest, the lap stackers are now shipping. Go and grab yours at adaptify.com slash lapstacker. If you enter the coupon code adaptifier, you'll get 10% off. Go to adaptify.com and check it all out. Today's adaptifier is Andrea Dalzell. At the age of five, Andrea was diagnosed with transverse myelitis. What's followed has been 30 or more really intensive surgeries. She is such a positive person. I can't understate that. It's amazing. She came from uh, South American parents who instilled in her a work ethic and an anything is possible mindset. Just what you need if you're an adaptifier. Andrea is the seated nurse for a reason. She studied to be a nurse and she's battled the whole way to get recognized as a nurse, to be seen as being able to do everything that a standing nurse can do and more. I'm interested to chat with Andrea about that journey, but also her fitness tips and techniques. I know she suffers from chronic pain. What does she do to manage that? Andrea, it's such an honor to have you on the show. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Hey, look, I've, um, I've seen you uh, on Instagram, of course, for, for quite a while now. And um, man, you've got lots to share. But before we get into you know the details of your life right now, um, can you share a little bit about uh, a little bit about your upbringing and and your childhood and what was life like for you growing up? Yeah, so I am born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, both of my parents are from South America, and they uh, I'm first generation American. So growing up, my parents are like always the hardworking, get up and go to work, you know, we don't settle for anything less. And that's kind of what they instilled very young age. So when I was five years old and diagnosed with transverse myelitis, uh, it's where my body attacked the spinal cord and left me uh, a T10 to L1 incomplete, incomplete paraplegic. It was the same mentality that they gave me, right? It was like, come on, you can't sit and wallow. You have to figure out life. Um, we don't have the opportunity to just sit back and let life happen because again, they're immigrants from another country and all they know is hard work. So when I was diagnosed, that's all they kept saying to me, like, you have to figure it out. We have to figure it out and we have to keep moving forward. There's no stopping because of this. <laughs> well, so can I ask which, uh, which uh, South American country did your parents come from? So my mom is from Venezuela and my dad is from Guyana. Okay. And so disability in those countries, what, what is, what is the perception of, uh, of a disabled person and what, um, you know, in your community, even even right here, what was, how do people treat you as a disabled uh, person? Um, I don't think perception so much of it is is on a negative side, but I do believe that in another country, you know, disability isn't even thought of as an inclusive uh, subject, right? Disability is like, okay, you have a disability, you don't do anything else, you stay home, you're considered invalid to society. Um, this can be seen in many different countries. We're not seeing, you know, inclusive 
and cultural uh, acceptance of someone with a disability, whatever that disability is. Uh, and when you kind of transfer that here, uh, there's much more of a life to be had here in the United States. Um, there's much more of an inclusion and a, and a um, an acceptance and wanting to make sure that this culture, I call it a culture because I think that disability is, it transcends more than, you know, just everyday life. This is, is a cultural perception. But we're here, I think that we are looking at someone with a disability as either invalid and not able to commit to society or very able to commit to society and wanting to make sure that they are a part of the, of the culture and making sure that they are feeling accepted. And, and we kind of toe the line a lot. You know, people with disabilities might not see it that way, but able people see it that way all the time. They look at us as either we can or we can't. Mm. And nine times out of 10, they're putting that perception based on what they can and can't do. Well, that's uh, that's really interesting. I was in China last year, and you know, with a with a billion people, and some of the cities I was in were you know Shanghai, uh, you know, 30, 30 million people or more. Mm-hmm. And in that entire time that I was cruising around, I, I only saw uh, one person with a disability that that I could recognise. And I was thinking, where are all the uh, where are all these other people? And and I think you're right. Maybe their society hasn't. Um, hasn't included them or uh, it's just culturally isn't accepted for, for them to um, be integrated, you know, be integrated. Yeah. Or, yeah. or, or see the possibilities, um, which is, which is sad, <laughs> you know, but I guess that's, that's, that's part of our job uh, here in the West to, um, or in our countries that that are more inclusive, and there's a long way to go <laughs> with inclusivity, as you know. But but um, you know, we we've, we've got a role to play. Uh, I used to work at um, it was called the New Zealand Spinal Trust, and they're they're a bit like uh, Triumph Foundation or High Fives. Mm-hmm. And we had delegates from Korea come to New Zealand to look at our model of um, integration, um, because you know some of the spinal cord injury there would spend. Um, upwards of uh, a year and a half to two years in bed after their injury. That was just the the standard procedure, right? And then they would just be hidden away in their, you know, in their family's home. Yikes. And so they came over to look at us, and and you should have you should have seen their eyes light up, and they were just going, "Holy moly!" You know, like this is this is incredible. You know, for starters, you've got wheelchair users that are in the hospital. They're, you know, showing other wheelchair users how to how to do things and. So, I mean, you know, we've got a long way to go um, globally, but uh, but I guess we're very fortunate that we live in countries that that have this uh, growing inclusivity, and it's a, definitely a trend, wouldn't you agree, worldwide? Oh, of course, definitely. I think that people with disabilities are finding their voices. They're realizing that there's a life to be had post having a disability or getting a diagnosis that's life altering, and you know we no longer want to be hidden. We want to be seen. We want to be included in the conversation. We want to be seen as contributing members of society. We want to have the same options as everyone else. And the fact that we are the largest and fastest growing minority worldwide, at some point or another, someone's going to have a disability. And it's not if, it's when. And when you start having that mindset or when you hit a diagnosis or disability at a younger age, now you have so much more of a life to to live and have, and you have more of a voice and a conviction to keep going versus, you know, when you're diagnosed at an 
older age where things aren't as more progressive in the thought process that there's a life to be lived when there is still a life to be lived until the end. <clears throat> mm, yeah, interesting. Uh, you were you were five, right? Did I, did, I, did I hear that correctly? Yeah. I was five when I was diagnosed and I was 12 when I completely stopped walking. So tell us about those those years. What uh, you know, what were some of the fears that you had and, and um, what were some of the things that you really had to push through uh, psychologically? You know, as a young woman, um, we always think like the worst thing ever, right? We're women, I think men and women in general, we're just our, our own worst critics. So imagine being a teenager going through a uh, beginning of high school, right? And that's like the bullying years. It's kind of where you're finding yourself. It's kind of where you hit puberty. It's trying to find who you are, yet having to deal with a disability that's limiting you on top of the fact that perceptions are also limiting you because everyone's telling you, you can't do something, won't be able to do something, or maybe it's going to be too hard. So you try to do it. Uh, and they're putting you down. So then you're automatically questioning if you can, can't, or should. Uh, and within that, I think for me, it was, it was more along the lines of how do I um, just be heard? Just, just how do I love myself? How do I make friends? How do I prove or show that I'm just as capable and I should have the same opportunities as everyone else who doesn't have a disability gets? Like, how do I um, fit in? Right. As a teenager, that's what we're looking for. We're looking to fit in. We're looking to have a space where, you know, we have friends and we feel accepted and we feel loved. And even as young adults, if someone who uh, might have gotten a disability at, in their 20s, right, you're still looking for that. I, I want to feel loved. I want to have a partner. I want to get married. These are the things that young kids think about. These are the things that, you know, teenagers think about. And it's something that I had to grapple with and, you know, stop putting pressure on myself. Like things will happen when they happen. And I needed to learn to love myself as a person with a disability and what my disability meant and how I was going to portray that side of me, um, what side I wanted to show the world, how was I going to grapple with doing my everyday life with my disability and what I wanted to show my friends and what I wanted to hide from my friends until the point where I was just like, I didn't care anymore. And I'm just tired of hiding. And this is me just see me and love me instead of, you know, me trying to figure out how to hide certain things and hide all of my own insecurities on top of hiding things that I thought people would be uncomfortable uncomfortable around. Mm. Well, there's, there's quite a bit to unpack there. I, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you described how, how you fit in with your, your friends, um, you know, how, how to be seen, how to love yourself. So is this just something that happens over time? It's, it's a gradual realization or were there certain events that catalyze that um, transformation or that realization? Um, were, were there some, you know, was there some bullying that occurred that you that sent you into a spin, and then out of that you emerged, you know, with new wings? Like, how did you how did you manage to achieve um, that mindset? So, in junior high school, I was bullied, tormented, and teased nonstop. You know, kids will be kids, but at that time, I was just like, oh, my wheelchair was this this hindrance, right? I'm being called taxi. I'm being called. Uh, 
all these things. And I know somebody's probably laughing because I still laugh about it now. I can laugh about it now. But back then, being called a taxi or roly poly or, you know, wasn't exactly something that I wanted to be called. I don't want you to bring attention to my disability. Can't you just see me? And in high school, I got really lucky and really blessed because my friends invited me everywhere. They invited me to the mall. They invited me out to Dunkin' Donuts. They wanted to walk with me to the bus stop. Uh, And I think there was a monumental shift when I stopped taking a yellow school bus to school and was taking the public transportation system to school. Uh, for and, and I was lucky in that manner. So there's a story behind that. I wanted to go to the corner store to get a bagel, like a breakfast sandwich and Nesquik before school. Like all of my friends are going to the corner store to get this. I want to go too. But because of the fact that I took the yellow school bus to school, you have to take the yellow school bus from home straight to school. You get off the bus and you go straight in the building. There's no, you know, mm-hmm. no stopping. You go straight, that's the path. And one day when that school bus let me off the bus, I made a beeline to the corner and all the teachers are yelling after me like, Andrea, you have to come back. Don't go anywhere. And I'm like, I'm bye. See ya. (laughs) (laughs) And I met with my friends at the corner store. I got breakfast and rolled back to school and I got called to the principal's office and mom was called and was told, you know, she cannot leave the school grounds. You know, it is it is unsafe. And my mom was like, well, is everyone else doing it? And they're like, yeah, but she's not everyone else. She's She has a special education because she's in a wheelchair. And my mom was like, she's not special ed. She can do it. She can go by herself. And they were like, well, you have to sign a waiver. And my mom was like, okay, I'll sign the waiver. Give her a Metro card. My mom tells me if you're ever late to school, I'm going to put you back on the yellow bus. And I was like, okay. <laughs> And I made sure that I was never late to school, but that allowed me to have a social life. It allowed me to be seen as normal, quote unquote, around my peers in high school. They saw me as a regular person, you know, going to the bus, getting on the bus, going to the store, getting food, hanging out after school like teenagers do. And it allowed me to build those friendships and, and get over, you know, a lot of my own insecurities about my wheelchair at that point in time. Oh, that's a great story. Awesome. I love it. And, uh, man, that must have felt freeing, you know, um, especially to have the support of your, your mom. That's, that's price to say. Uh, I've read that education is the most important thing around education is to build confidence in a person. And if you, if you leave, you know, high school and you have confidence, then you will try things and not, not worry about failing. Um, and mm-hmm. you know, so definitely, and I, I definitely gained confidence a lot. I can, I owe a lot of my high school life to me having a voice that I have now, to me having the confidence that I have now, especially the friends that I've made in high school. I'm still really good friends with a lot of them uh, to today. And a lot of them are still my number one supporters. They're the ones that are like, go for it. You know, they never shied away when I wanted to try something crazy. And they were the, always the first ones to say, let's do it. Let's figure out a way to get it done. <laughs> uh, it's so good. I, and in a way, you know, your, your wheelchair forms as, uh, as, as a filter, you know, the people that are going to see you for you will, will be there. And those that can't handle the wheelchair or, or just have this uh, prejudice, mm-hmm. they'll, they'll fall away. Right. And so yeah. you've, you found your you found your tribe 
and uh, and sounds like they're um, sounds like you're, you're close, and so that that's awesome. And, and I guess some of the advice I'd give, uh, and, and I'm sure you'd agree, is that you know just you just got to be yourself because the the people that um, yeah, the people that are meant to be in your life will be. But if you're putting on some sort of fake persona and you're you're not being yourself, then you'll attract the wrong people, right? And uh, you know, so even oh, though it may, it may seem hard, uh, you know, but yeah, you just gotta you just gotta you just gotta be confident into who you are, I reckon, and then uh, then you'll find the right people. Oh yeah, a hundred percent. So what sort of um aspirations did you have, you know, at, at the end of high school or or you know, even even through school, and in, in terms of your uh, career, did you have any any dreams? So, my mom always told me, my dad were my mom and dad were really really big on education, like you said, right? So, making sure that I had a foundation of education. My mom likes to say, uh, "They can take everything away from you, but they can't take away your education. They can't take away your brains. If you're smart, you go far." And I held on to that and I, I tried to make sure that I had uh, decent grades in school. And uh, when I was sick, I used to tell my doctors all the time that I would come back and sue them. I was going to be a lawyer. I was going to come back and I was going to sue them <laughs> for all the pain that they ever put me through. You know, the amount of pokes and prods and surgeries that we've all been through in our lives, right? Um, all the times that we show up at a doctor's office and they look at us all crazy like they don't know what to do with us. I was like, yeah, I'm coming back for you, all of you. And uh, my junior high school graduation, my main doctor came to my graduation. I had to be signed out of the hospital to go to graduation at that point. And he came uh, and he wrote in my memory book, please, anything but a lawyer. I think he knew that I was going to come back for real. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I decided that I was going to try to be a doctor and I was going to try to solve uh, chronic pain. And I was going to, you know, be the savior to spinal cord injuries. I was going to, I was going to find the cure. Uh, and while I was in college, I was auditing medical school classes as I was getting ready to, to wrap up my bio and neuroscience degrees. And I said, you know what, let me check out these classes and see what, if I really want to go spend all of this money on medical school. <laughs> and I didn't want to spend the money on medical school. <laughs> it didn't work out for me. I was, uh, I didn't like the medical model as much as I thought I was going to like it. You know, we were told, I'm pretty sure you've heard it. And I know a lot of people have heard the words, you'll never walk again, mm. or you'll never be able to do something again, or um, it's unlikely that this will happen, right? The medical model is very built on science. So science says it can't happen right now. It's not going to happen. But then science next week says, oh, it's possible. Then it's possible, <laughs> right? But the medical model is always going to tell you, well, we don't know. I don't think so. And I didn't want to ever tell someone that they wouldn't be able to do something. Uh, I, w I never wanted to tell someone they'd never be able to walk or they wouldn't be able to dance or do something like that. Like, that's crazy to me. Mm. Um, and that's where nursing came in, right? There's this holistic approach where nurses take care of the whole person. They want you to live the life that you want to live, have the quality of life that you want to have and kind of work towards that. And, uh, it's not that I ever saw a nurse in a wheelchair that kind of, you know, pushed me in that direction. I was just like, nurses treat the whole person. Nurses were my advocates when I was in the hospital. I'm going to go be a nurse. And here I am today. <laughs> I'm a nurse. Uh, that's so awesome. Well, there's quite the story behind your nursing, your nursing journey. Um, you know, yeah, I'd love to get into that. Uh, 
I, I guess the, the the choice to be a nurse, uh, you, you could clearly see that maybe you can make a maybe even bigger impact uh, than if you trained as a as a doctor, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, I think that uh, nurses come into contact with so many patients on a given day that you know our mindsets really do have the the power to touch and, and transform someone's life for the better, no matter what. So. Uh, that's great. Well, yeah. before I get into the nursing thing, you, you mentioned, you know, you're in the hospital for graduation. What are some of the lasting effects of your transverse myelitis? Um, and, you know, what are some of the surgeries that you had to have um, over the years? Yeah. So I, like I said, I'm a T10 to L1 incomplete paraplegic. Um, and I'm unable to wait there without crutches or with braces. Uh, I don't use my crutches or braces anymore just because after sitting in a chair for so long, uh, my hips are just offset. So I, it's just too painful for me to get up and walk around. Um, I deal with chronic pain on a daily basis. So everyone who deals with chronic pain, I feel you. I hear you when it's muggy and humid. I feel it too. Uh, and I suffer with chronic fatigue might not seem that way because I'm always on the go and I'm always busy but when I hit the pillow I am I'm done like my body needs to rest so I do need to listen to my body a lot because it can either make or break a day for me where I get up and I can't do anything for a couple days well if I'm working too hard and not giving myself a break uh as far as surgeries goes I've had 33 surgeries I've had uh, spinal fusions, uh, tendon releases, pins placed in both hips. Uh, at one point, I had osteomyelitis. I lost my uh, right femur, in which case I got cadaver bone and plates put in. Uh, so yeah, I've been through the ringer. I've broken my rods in my back a couple times just because I'm way too adventurous for my own good. <laughs> 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 Taking some falls and did some things that I probably shouldn't have done, but hey, it was worth it. <laughs> I'll do it again. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, pr- Proceed with caution, everyone listening. Please don't do things that you shouldn't probably do. <laughs> uh, one, one of the sort of first mentors of mine uh, is a paraplegic in Queenstown and he he broke both his uh, femurs falling off bar stools, um, you know, while out drinking with his mates. You know, <laughs> he's like, "Oh yeah, well, I don't, I don't, one one of them's shorter than the other now." So if I, if, if ever there's a cure for spinal cord injury, I'm gonna have a hard time walking. You know, but he sort of makes a bit of a joke about it, and it, it isn't a joke really. It's a serious serious thing to happen. <laughs> but, <laughs> but um, but it hasn't. You know, he's he's not going to stop doing what he does. Um, right. Because of it. Man, Andrea, listen, Andrea, th- those those surgeries are pretty major, and living with living with chronic pain. Uh, I'm fortunate; I, I don't live with chronic pain, but I but I do experience pain from time to time. So, I can't I can't even really imagine what what it's like to have a constant chronic pain um, issue. What are some What are some tips to navigate that? How do you How do you manage your pain? So I manage with one resting, making sure that I am resting when I need to. Um, I deal with it in many, many different ways. So it can be as simple as resting and making sure that I'm getting the rest that I need. Um, Making sure that I'm eating right. I notice that sometimes when I'm eating certain foods that are like higher in nitrates, I might have more nerve pain than usual. Hmm. Um, I try to stay away from a lot of heavy meats 
because that can add to it. And I try to make sure that I'm eating lots of raw vegetables and, and raw fruit because it aids in preventing my nerve pain from getting to the point where it's overbearing. Um, Epsom salt <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a hot bath sometimes oh, yeah. can help. CBD oils. I have to use CBD oils in tinctures. Yeah. Uh, I put them in tea or coffee. Um, especially on like humid or muggy days. So the summertime, I'm pretty much, um, I'm sorry, my internet kind of just froze up a little bit. Um, I can still so, hear you. Yeah. Okay, good. With uh, coffee or tea and in my food, especially in the wintertime, cold affects me really bad. So I use uh, hot packs a lot uh, and I put them in my clothing so that I'm keeping as warm as possible. Um I use heated blankets um, cautiously, just because I don't have the same amount of feeling at my feet that I would do that I have at the top of my thighs. So I'm always checking my skin just to make sure that the heat's not overbearing. But if it's too cold, my pain is just going to be out of control. Um, a lot of peppermint oil and and essence and smells and scents and trying to keep that going as much as possible. But right now, my biggest focus has been on just working out, um, controlling my weight and making sure that I'm not um, getting to the point where I'm overweight by any doctor because I realize the lower my weight is, it, it tends to I I don't know if that it's correlated, but to me, in my mind, it is. So, I just lost you at the last bit there. You're saying that controlling your weight um, is is important to you right now. In time, can you hear me? I can hear you now. Yeah, maybe we start from there. A few few uh, technical issues there. Sorry about that. So I was saying that right now, uh, I am cord cord. Ah correlating the two (laughs) I'm correlating um, excess weight with my nerve pain I do realize that when I do put on a couple extra pounds that my nerve pain tends to come on a lot stronger and last for a little bit longer than uh, when I'm don't have uh, extra five pounds on or 10 pounds. So I am trying to just make sure that I stay within a sweet spot with my weight and you know making sure that I'm just managing it as much as possible to avoid hitting the peaks of my nerve pain. Oh, wow. There's so many good insights there. That, that's probably the, the best rundown on how to manage pain that I've had uh, in, in all of my conversations on Adaptify. That's, that's really, really quite amazing. You're clearly very self-aware and I think that's, I think it's incredibly important uh, for everybody, but more so for, uh, you know, for us with the, uh, with a spinal cord injury, you need to, you really need to understand your body, be willing to experiment with different routines and like you say, different foods, different methods to find out what, uh, what effect that has on your body. Cause we're all different. Right. And, um, it sounds to me like over the years, you've really got a good understanding on, on, uh, you know, on your pain and how to manage it. Yes, of course. I mean, I think that everyone just needs to kind of have that self-awareness a little bit. Um, It takes a lot and it's not easy. This life is not for the faint of heart. We get tired. We don't, we want to give up. We don't want to keep going on these routines. We want to eat the things that we love because it's comforting (laughs) to us, you know? Okay, fine. Do that. Eat what you like. Um, Don't, uh, 
don't stop living the life that you want to live, but be mindful of how that plays out in the long term because nobody wants to lay up in bed for four months because they're so uh, overweight that they get a pressure ulcer. Right. Mm -hmm. Or, um, you know, we can no longer transfer ourselves without hurting our muscles or hurting our joints because we need those joints for the rest of our life to work for our back. So. Yeah, totally. Uh, While we're talking about fitness uh, and and sort of health, what uh, what is your fitness routine? What what uh, what do you enjoy doing for exercise? Uh, so right now, um, I'm lucky enough to have a personal trainer who's been working with me. Um, he's not trained in adaptive fitness at all, but he is uh, willing to help me and learn my movements and my body mechanics. And right now, we have been trying to make sure that I'm keeping my rotator cuff and my shoulders and back as stable as possible (laughs) as you do it with me. Yes, right? Um, Making sure um, that we are not, um, you know, overusing muscles and not underusing others that can definitely help. So Yeah, nice. Go and check out uh, Andrea's Instagram page, uh, The Seated Nurse. Is that right? At The Seated Nurse. And yes, and check out some of her workout videos. Holy <laughs> man, they look hard. They look hard. They look, I'm pretty sure you can do it. <laughs> <laughs> they look hard, and also she is so incredibly staunch and determined. And that the just the you know, man, it's great. Go check them out. And uh, <laughs> yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a good frame of reference for for what it means to work hard and. Uh, you can clearly see the work ethic that uh, you know that your parents have instilled in you, and uh, and the reason why you know you're, you're so successful in your career <laughs> and and other areas of your life. So, talking about nursing, what was that journey like? How how was the path to becoming a registered nurse and then gaining employment for you? Uh, it's been an uphill battle and it still is an uphill battle as much as we've made major moves in the, in the world worldwide. And here in the United States, we've made some major moves, right? We just hit our 30th year of the ADA and the Americans with Disabilities Act, you know, that gave us, you know, right to education and unemployment and making sure that we, you know, as people with disabilities have equal access to certain things. And as much as that has been accomplished, when I applied for nursing school in 2017, uh, yeah, 2016, <laughs> forgive me, <laughs> it's been some time, um, 2016, I got into nursing school um, and, uh, or 2017, I'm sorry, guys, forgive me. <laughs> Either way, uh, I got into nursing school based on my grades. Uh, I had already had my biology degree and going into nursing school, uh, I just applied, got in based on grades. And on my first day of orientation, I was asked to leave orientation and where two professors spoke to me and were like, we don't know if you can be a nurse. Um, We don't see how this is going to be able to happen. Um, You're dismissed for the day and we'll let you know. And I was like, um no, the ADA covers me. Uh, I'll wait until the end of orientation, being that it was a mandated orientation. And uh, after orientation, I kind of booked it to my school's diversity and compliance office and was like, I was told that I can't be a nurse and that I can't be in the program. 
And they were like, no, no, that's not how this is going to work. We'll talk to them. We'll figure it out. Uh, I kind of made a huge think about it because I was like, you can't tell me what I can and can't do in the educational sense. Mm. Um, Luckily for me, the ADA and for everyone here in the United States, uh, the ADA covers our education. We cannot be denied uh, into a program once we've already been accepted. Wow. So... Oh, and helped me out. <laughs> it must have felt good to have that as a backstop. So, oh. you know, power of the people that helped uh, get the ADA in, into, oh, yeah. into into play. That was a, that was a huge move. Uh, and I, I know that you know, seeing seeing on social that you know, there's still a long way to go, and and a lot of the ADA uh, law isn't known uh, around the community and. So it takes it takes some knowledge like you had of what rights you have to to stand up and and go. Hang on a minute, <laughs> no, I am allowed to do this. So, uh, what what are some other things um, you know people listening can reference the ADA for? You know, our United States listeners. I mean, for one, education. So once you have been accepted, they cannot deny you. They have to make reasonable accommodations. The same thing for the workplace. So I graduated out of nursing school. Um, and I went on the hunt for a job. Uh, I was offered every desk job that I went for, but when it came to being in acute care, they didn't want to give me the job. They couldn't perceive the fact that I can do the job at the bedside. Mm -hmm. So it's the same thing that would happen for anyone who has a disability. Now I tell you to, the ADA is going to have your back regardless. And, you know, a lot of us kind of shy away from, holding employers to their diversity statements that are on their websites. We don't (laughs) hold their hands to the fire. Everyone's saying they're an equal opportunity employer, but what does that necessarily mean? It can't just mean race. It can't just mean that, you know, between black, white, and Asian or any other um, preference. It can't be male or female, right? Or it has to be inclusive of everyone. That means all of our, our uh, LGBTQ family. That means if you're black or white, Asian, or, or if you uh, wear a hijab, or if you, you know, it, it's inclusive of everyone, right? Mm. This, is, this is what the ADA really is saying. It's saying that we are inclusive, that you have to make reasonable accommodations. And if you can't make reasonable accommodations, you need to list the reasons why. Right. Mm. And you have to give those very clear references to the person who's applying for a position. And a lot of employers like to kind of negate that and say, well, we just don't have the space anymore or a more qualified person has been hired in this position. And I kind of fight back on that and I'm be like, well, I, I need to know how this was how this decision has come about. Mm. Because I'm pretty sure if I'm the only person with a disability signing up for this position and I'm not getting it and there is no one with a disability working in your workplace, then how are you really holding up to your diversity statement on your policies? Oh, you go, girl. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So mm-hmm. you, you ultimately ended up uh, being accepted into, into a role. Um, after lots and lots of setbacks, I believe. So what what made this employer different and what's been your experience thus far? So I wish I can say that it's been extremely different. So COVID was mm. a blessing and a curse in disguise, right? COVID hit the world like a ton of bricks. Mm. Good job to New Zealand and good job to New York. We're both in places that are uh, are very low on the COVID pole. 
right? Uh, we've, we've combat it. And here in New York, we hit a peak and our peak was so devastating that our hospitals were overrun and they, every hospital system was begging for nurses. And here I am, a nurse. My, my job had just closed its doors. Uh, I worked as a school nurse prior to COVID and schools closed down and hospitals are begging for nurses. So one hospital put out their HR number and I called and I said, I'm available to work. And I was asked to, I, they called me back maybe 15 minutes later and said, can you come in tomorrow and get credentialed? And I said, okay. And I'm thinking the ball is going to drop. They don't know that I'm in a chair. I'm going to show up and they're going to turn <laughs> me away at the door. And no, I showed up and they gave me an ID badge and said, report here tomorrow. So the following day after I reported, um, I show up to the hospital that I was going to be working at and I'm on the floor and I'm like, okay, the ball hasn't dropped yet. I'm here. Oh my goodness. This is going to happen. I'm going to, I'm fulfilling this, this journey for myself, right? I want to be an acute care nurse and here I am getting chance during COVID. And right at that moment, um, I'm thinking everything's great. And I get asked to come off of the floor by the assistant director of the, or, of the institution. And they said, um, have you worked on a floor before? And I was like, yeah, during clinicals. <laughs> and they're like, uh, we don't know if you can be a nurse on the floor. And I'm like, here we go again with the same statements that I keep hearing. And I said, well, I think you should take that up with HR because I've already been told that I can be here. <laughs> and she was like, oh, I didn't mean it in a, in a negative sense. And I was like, I know you didn't, but I think that your questions are more valid for HR because I'm already here. If you give me the chance, I'm pretty sure that things will be okay. And she gave me the chance and I was able to work out a COVID contract. So I finished working the contract back in uh, the beginning of June. And after that, I uh, went back to square one, still looking for a job at the bedside because perceptions are that someone with a disability is either going to one, spread infection, or two, not going to be able to hold up to the same standards as other nurses. Mm-hmm. So... Is there is there any truth to that whatsoever? In my in my situation, no. Right, I've already been able to prove that I'm quite capable to be a nurse, whether in a seated position or as an able nurse. I'm able to do the same task. I mm. might not do it the same exact way because my body mechanics are a little bit different, but I'm not slower and I'm not um, incompetent in any way. Uh, I'm able to do the same medications, the same tasks, the same exact needs of the patient are met. Uh, I think that there's a perception that someone with a disability will be less likely or less able to do the job. And in actuality, I'm sitting for 12 hours. I lock in place. I have brakes on my chair. I'm not bending at my waist and hurting my back to lift a patient. You know, we have tricks of the trade that help us with our body mechanics. That way we're not using body um muscles that can hurt the next day. Whereas nurses who are standing for 12 hours and don't get a chance to sit, I feel bad for them when I'm sitting for 12 hours, they should be jealous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I was just thinking when you said I'm just as fast, I mean, you, in, in some cases you'd be faster zipping around in your wheelchair around the place, you know, um, yeah. you know, um, what, what are some of the, the physical aspects of being a seated nurse that, um, that, are, that have been either difficult or you've had to find new ways of, of doing, doing that task. Is there anything um, in particular? So like ambulating a patient, right? Getting a patient up to walk to the bathroom. I'm not going to be the person to 
to walk a patient to the bathroom. I think that's kind of on the dangerous side. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I do request help on that sense. But who wouldn't? If a patient is overweight, you're just going to have a two, two to one ratio in helping that patient get to the bathroom. Or even transferring in bed. You know, for me, I get to lock in place. So when a patient wants to get up out of bed and get to a chair at the bedside, they're not falling onto the floor because now it's the bed, the chair, and me, (laughs) right? So they're either falling onto me, in which case they're not hitting the floor, which is what we're trying to avoid in the first place. (laughs) And I'm strong enough to be able to pivot them to a chair. Uh, So I I do like that. Um, I have some differences that I am able to do and not do at the same time. That's great. And what about the patient's perspectives? What has been the reaction from, you know, some of your patients? You know, I love that patients either look at me and think that I am way too incapable to help and they're like, I should be in the bed instead of them. And that's the irony is that I'm the one taking care of them versus the one that's in the bed this time around. (laughs) (laughs) And um, some patients think that it is the most amazing thing they've ever seen, especially for someone who's gotten a diagnosis that is going to be life altering, right? Someone who is who is recently diagnosed with a stroke who might not have use of their limbs might be thinking that life is over and then here I am rolling into the room going to help them and they're like wow wait a minute I can do this like things are going to be different but I can do this or someone who is new to a spinal cord injury right they're thinking that life's over I'm not going to be able to live this life and here I am rolling into the room taking care of them and they're like oh wait hold on. Mm-hmm. I, I can have a job. I can be a nurse. I can be a healthcare worker. I can do, I can do other things. Yeah. You just have to build up and get to that point. And you have to believe that, you know, life goes on past the diagnosis. Oh, it's so good. I love it. I mean, <laughs> that in itself is a reason to employ, uh, you know, a, a seated nurse. That in itself is, you know, I imagine that, that people, looking to you to see what's possible will give them hope. And then if you've got hope, you're definitely going to recover faster. You know, you, your mental attitude is going to be so much more improved. Um, that must give you a real sense of satisfaction and joy seeing seeing that uh, sort of aha moment from from patients, right? Oh, of course. I think that's the reason why I love what I do. Even outside of a hospital setting, when I'm in a school setting, kids who maybe only interact with someone with a disability when it's in their family, right? And nine times out of 10, that's going to be a grandparent. A grandpa uses a wheelchair, a grandma uses a wheelchair or a walker, right? And they're automatically thinking like the worst thing ever when a grandparent passes away, that's all they're associating with disability is someone who uh, is older and dies, right? Mm-hmm. They're not seeing someone who's young and capable, right? Grandpa was in a wheelchair and then grandpa died. So now when I see someone else in a wheelchair, I'm going to think that person is going to die, right? There's an association there that kids see. But then when kids see me rolling around the school and they're seeing me interact with them and laugh with them and, you know, helping them out, their minds are automatically shifting from what they're perceiving at home 
or what they see in society. Now they're seeing someone who's very capable of doing things. They might do it differently, but kids are so innovative that they are even coming up to me and saying, oh, I can see how you can do this. Can you do a wheelie? Can you, you know, they want to ask me the questions that they normally wouldn't get a chance to ask if they were out in public, right? So I love seeing that eye-opening effect, not only from patients in a hospital, but from kids in a school who probably wouldn't necessarily have interactions with someone with a disability out, outside of it. Oh, that's so good. Yeah, young young people, young children, have flexibility in their mindset, right? So this is the chance to help them see what can be. You know, it's so cool. So my son, he's 11. He's known me as as a wheelchair user since he was three. I mean, he doesn't remember me walking. And he jumps in my other wheelchair that I've got and he does spins and he and he's he's been able to see and, and his friends too, you know, I take them out on the boat, we go fishing, we've gone camping, we do all those sort of things. And his friends, they ask questions openly and they, you can see the light bulb going on and they're, they're just like, ah, oh, wow, okay, this is, this is cool. You know, so those kids will have a completely different perception of, uh, you know, what a, what a wheelchair user can do in their life than had they not had that experience, that interaction with, uh, with me and with my son. Um, how do you scale that? That's the thing. I suppose uh, social media helps, you know, um, definitely helps. It's, I mean, you just, geez, I'm just, I'm blown away speaking with people like you, you know, every week I'm just like, wow, there is um, some game changers out there. There's the adaptifiers of the world that, um, that are basically changing the dialogue. They're changing the, um, they're changing the way things are perceived, which is incredibly exciting. Andrea, what does what does the future hold for you? Um, you know, aside from uh, you know finding finding another nursing role, um, have you got any other sort of aspirations in your life or any plans coming up? So I'm currently uh, getting my master's degree in nursing, nursing education. Uh, I do hope that at some point or another that I am back to doing my speaking conferences and motivating people around the world. Um, I am hoping to uh, officially launch the Seated Nurse brand, right, which is not only motivational speaking and encouragement, but also just how do we uh, navigate being wheelchair users or people with disabilities within the professional realm, right? Uh, A lot of us leave or come out of our traditional jobs when we have a disability. I know that, you know, I was young when I had mine and had to work my way into the professional world. But a lot of us um, leave their roles or the jobs that they were doing when they become disabled or have a disability and they don't know how to get back into what it is that they love. So I'd love to kind of start helping and, and mentoring and life coaching those people back into doing things that they probably would be too afraid to do. Uh, because of everything that everyone else has told them. Uh, it's a wonderful idea, and I've no doubt that it'll be jam-packed with great, <laughs> great knowledge, insights, support. Uh, yeah, that, that's a that's a fantastic goal to have. Uh, where can people uh, find out about that and uh, catch up with you online or otherwise? Well, it's definitely the the website. The seated nurse has not launched just yet, but it's coming soon. As well as right now, you can follow me on uh, Instagram at The Seated Nurse. Uh, everything is going to be in the link in the bio on Instagram. Uh, and you can find me on Facebook as well, Andrea Dalzell. 
Uh, it's so good. I'll make sure I put those links in Andrea's Adaptify profile page on our website at adaptify.com. So yeah, be sure to check that out uh, for all the links there. Andrea, it has been it's been fun actually. I've really enjoyed I've really enjoyed chatting with you. I know we met very briefly in LA while I was at the Abilities Expo there, and uh, yeah, I really wish I I got to spend a bit more time with you in person uh, there. And and hopefully one day that will become reality once the world. Opens back. <laughs> Opens back up. And, uh, you know, if you're ever able to travel uh, to New Zealand, you know, we'll welcome you in, in, uh, in our home and um, show you around. So um, be sure to keep that in mind. Yes. I was in New York in 2014, uh, did the marathon there in a pusher and wheelchair, and I had an absolute blast. I loved that city. It was so, so much fun. Uh, and you got to come the, back. People were friendly, you know, so, so, you know, it was awesome. Well, look, thanks. It's been, it's been an honor and I really appreciate your time. Um, good luck with the, the rest of your master's program and with, um, with your mission to, uh, to change, change people's lives. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and meeting today's Adaptifier. To learn more about Adaptify and the products we have in development, products that will increase freedom for wheelchair users, go to adaptdefy.com. That's A-D-A-P-T-D-E-F-Y.com. We're also on all the major social media platforms at Adaptify. Follow us there for more behind-the-scenes looks and more up-to-date information on product releases. Hope you enjoyed this podcast. Look forward to catching you next time.